And I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 1, the first Psalm, Psalm 1. And this, um, as you know, uh, we have been the past six months taking a break from our normal practice of preaching through books of the Bible. And instead, we have been looking at a different text every week that unfolds the values and the vision of our church. And today we'll be looking at Psalm 1 as we bring that series to a close. Psalm 1 summarizes for us all the values of our vision. And that vision, as we said, is very straightforward. It is our goal as a church to transform the town of Flower Mound with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a gospel that brings about personal transformation, community formation, social justice, and cultural renewal, not just here in this town, but we believe it can reach out to the whole metroplex, to the entire state of Texas, to the whole of the U.S., and even to the ends of the world. People of God, as we bring this series to a close, you have a very important choice to make. And that is, what will you do with the things that you have heard over the last six months? What will you do with these values, this vision that our church holds to? The choice is whether you want our vision statement to remain simply a piece of paper that sits in the back in the foyer, something nice that you can pick up and look at and say, oh... Isn't that aspirational? And leave it there? Or whether you want that vision statement to represent the way that you live. Every one of those core values that we've looked at, under those big headings, personal transformation as Christ changes us from within, community formation as he makes us into a new people, social justice as we begin biblically to demonstrate how the world is changed by the coming of Christ, and cultural renewal as we change the way that we speak and the things that we do. All these core values are rooted in the Scripture, as we have seen over the last six months. And so, in short, to live out our vision statement is, in fact, to live biblically. And so we have a choice before us. Will it simply be something nice that we hold to and say it's on a piece of paper? Or will we live it out? Will we live our lives biblically? And please, don't fall into the trap of thinking, well, the church is something that I come to. And the church, they have a vision statement. This is not like going to Walmart or to the Dallas Mavericks, organizations that exist whether we are there or not. The church is you. The church is me. The church is us together. The question is, are we going to live this out? The choice is yours. Just think on the things that we see happening in the world all around us right now. Sexual immorality is rampant as we deny the most basic things that any person who doesn't have to have a Ph.D. in biology can tell. That's a boy. That's a girl. As we defy the word of God concerning our sexuality, we see unfettered violence in our city streets as we assault one another, those created in the image of God. Discrimination, which we had hoped had been for the most part put behind us, has once again reared its ugly head, this time saying that there is a whole race that is guilty simply because of the color of their skin. 
These and many other ills that I can go on and talk about again and again and again, more and more and more. All these things are the result of a society that has come unmoored from biblical principles. A society that no longer has a biblical worldview. A society where now the focus is entirely on the self. It's all about me, my pleasure, my feelings. To society that can no longer see anywhere beyond their nose, as it were. And people of God, this is no longer something I remember when I was a young man and people would say, if we continue like this, we will become. There's no more we will. We are. We have become this society unmoored from these things. These things are now rampant in our generation and very much in the younger generation. We have a responsibility, especially those who are parents, and all of us as a covenant responsibility who take vows to assist parents in the raising of their children and nurture and admonition of the Lord. We have a responsibility to train our children in godliness. This is countercultural, but it's that to which we are called to do. And we see that choice and that responsibility here in Psalm 1 very clearly. Let's read it now, this word of God. It reads, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like shaft that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearing, especially as it's preached to us this morning. Well, people of God, it's absolutely no accident that Psalm 1 comes at the very beginning of the Psalter. You see, the Psalms as a whole reflect our life before God. They reflect our relationship with God. And so Psalm 1 begins about talking about the choices that we make in terms of our relationship with God. In fact, it talks about the key choice that every human being must make in regard to how we will live before God. And so as we look at this psalm, we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see the two ways of life. Second, we'll examine the way of blessing. And third, we'll talk about the blessed man. The two ways of life that are put before us in this psalm, the way of blessing, which is the one that I suspect we all want to walk, and that blessed man who is Jesus himself. So let's jump in and take a look at the two ways of life. And the first thing that you notice about this psalm is that at the very beginning and at the very end, first verse and last verse, it gives us a contrast. A contrast in verse 1, a contrast in verse 2. And both of those contrasts are pitched to us in terms of a promise and a warning. So the psalm begins with a promise and with a warning, and it ends with a promise and with a warning. Take a look at verse 1. The first thing that we see there is a contrast between two ways of life that are presented for us. We have one way, the way of the godly, the way of the righteous. The other is the way of the wicked, the way of the unrighteous. The promise that's put before us is that if you choose the way of the righteous, you will be blessed. 
The warning is that if you choose the way of the wicked, you will be cursed. Now, it doesn't use the word cursed, but you will not be blessed, of which we imply cursed. So that's the contrast between two ways of life. The way of the godly who will be blessed, the way of the ungodly who will be cursed. Now, when you look at verse 6, there's also a contrast, but this time it's the contrast between the two end results. What happens when you choose one way or the other? And again, a promise and a warning. The promise is that if you choose the way of the godly, your end will be, as we see in verse 6, the first half, that you will be established. Now, that's maybe not quite so clear in the way it's translated in the ESV, so let's do a little word study here. It reads, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The word know here, for those of you who have uh, become familiar with Biblish, sometimes the way the, the words that are used in the Bible, the word here know means much more than simply awareness or an academic knowledge. It's that word that implies an intimate connection with a desire to care and protect and walk with that person. Uh, it's used in a sexual connotation when it talks about relationships between men and women. Uh, here, obviously, it's not sexual, but it has that idea of that intimate commitment, that intimate love and care and protection. You can see that in some other translations. The NIV translates this as the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. Again, the word is not literally watches, but it does bring this idea of that care and protection. The Good News translation is even looser, but it captures the right idea when it says the righteous are guided and protected. So that is the promise in verse 6. If you choose the way of the righteous, your end will be that you are guided and cared for and protected. You will be established. But the warning is that if you choose the way of the ungodly, then your end will be nothing but destruction. Those who choose the way of the wicked lack the care and the protection and the love that God gives, and the result is that they perish, verse 6 tells us. So no wonder the psalm opens up with, blessed is, which literally in the Hebrew reads, oh, how blessed, oh, how blessed. Because these are the two ways of life that are put before us. The way of the godly, who results in blessing. The way of the ungodly, that results in cursing. Now, let me just, let me just take a moment. It's become uh, somewhat vogue in modern translations to translate this as happy is the one. Not blessed, but happy. But the problem with that is that the contrast here is not between happy and sad, which are simply bare emotions, but between blessed and cursed. You see, some people might be happy even though they don't realize that they're cursed. And some blessed people may be quite sad, as Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn. So the contrast is not between happy and sad emotions, but between blessed and cursed. Happiness itself is merely a, a, a feeling. It's something that's fleeting. It comes and it goes. But true blessing is a state of being. It's a state of being. It does not come and go. And what we read in verse 6 is that those who choose the path of righteousness, their state of being is a state of well-being, a state of being established, of being rooted, of being unchanging. And so the blessing that comes to those who follow the way of God is one of fullness, one of joy, one of contentment, one of fulfillment. 
And it has much more to do with what we are than who we are and what we have. And that makes a big difference because our culture tends to emphasize those latter tendencies and not the former. You might have read about back in the time of the Depression, now 90 years ago, one of the promises was in order to restore material prosperity, there was one of these promises, a chicken in every pot. That's what we were promising everybody. You would have a chicken in every pot. And after we got out of the Depression and things started better, being bettered, there were still promises of material prosperity, and that came now to be a car in every garage. Well, here we are, decades later. There are now two or three cars in every garage. There are boats sitting in our driveways. We have computers, telephones, and stereo systems in little devices sitting in our pockets. We eat food that has already been prepared for us, lettuce that has already been chopped, carrots that have already been peeled, and we have more money than people have ever had in the history of humanity, and yet still we are not fulfilled. Still we are not content. Why is that? It's because contentment does not come through what we have, nor does contentment come through who we are, but rather by what we are. Are we the godly or are we the wicked? And what the psalm tells us, even in the very beginning, is that true contentment and fulfillment comes only to those who have been blessed through a relationship with God. And that is the way of the godly. And it is the only way to true blessedness. Outside of God's blessing, man will be cursed. And that is something that we need to recognize. There is no path to blessing outside of walking the way of God. There is no way to avoid being cursed outside of a relationship with God. And so outside of that relationship, Your life will be cursed, and it ultimately leads to a meaningless life. A meaningless life. Think of what Ecclesiastes 1 says. Actually, the whole of the book again and again and again says, Vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. Translated, I think, very well by the New Jerusalem Bible as sheer futility. Everything is futile under the sun. And that's the big perspective in the book of Ecclesiastes. As long as your perspective is under the sun, you're unable to look up and see eternal reality through God when it's all that what you can see here after you've weighed it all as the preacher in Ecclesiastes does. It's all meaningless. It's all futile. It leads nowhere because that's what life is when your perspective is just down here and does not take God into account. There can be no contentment No final fulfillment when we follow anything other than the way of God. No wonder, no wonder all those existentialists from the middle of the 20th century, Jean-Paul Sartre and all the other existentialists and secularists of that time, said that the only real option was suicide because there was nothing else in life. True contentment, true fulfillment, true value, true meaning in your life can only be found as you follow the way of God. These are the two paths that are put before us, the two ways of life, the way of the godly and the way of the ungodly. One leads to blessing and the other one inevitably leads to being cursed. The Psalter opens with this choice, and that choice is now before each and every one of us. For those of you sitting in your seats, those of you who are watching this online, The choice is inescapable. 
What will you choose? And the question that then comes up, and it's our second point, is how then should we travel the way of blessing? This is, of course, the only rational and sane choice that we can make. Now, that there are many people that choose the other way. Remember that sin is the most irrational thing that is. Sin by nature is irrational and always is acting against your best self-interest. So assuming that you have made the rational and the wise and the only sane choice, the question is, how do we travel the way of blessing? How do we avoid the way of cursing? We see that in our second point, the way of blessing. And it's very clear, the way that you choose the way of blessing, the way that you uh, walk the way of the godly involves two things. In verse 1, we must dissociate from the wicked, and in verse 2, we must associate with God. And if that sounds awfully like repentance, that's because it is. Repentance is simply that you turn away from the evil and the sin and the wicked activity and you turn instead unto God. And that's exactly what verse 1 is telling us. We are to dissociate from the wicked and verse 2 that we are to associate with God. Let's look at the first one and break that down. We are to dissociate from the wicked. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, this is so important that you see this. There is a progression that the psalmist is giving here, a progression of ungodliness. Later on, when we start a new sermon series here on the book of James, we're going to have an opportunity to look at how we are tempted and how sin enters into our life. But here in verse 1, we have a summary of the pathology of temptation and of sin and how we fall into it. And it's very simple. It begins with thinking, then behaving, and belonging. We begin to think upon something. Then it affects us to the point where we begin to behave it, behave along those lines. And finally, we belong to it. We're so steeped in it. You see it here. The thinking, the counsel of the wicked. We listen to their counsel. We listen to the advice of the world. And the next step in our de-evolution into sin is behaving. We are now in the way of sinners. We are now walking the path of sin. We're actively involved in the ways of the world. And finally, we are in the seat of scoffers. We now sit with them. We are now actively ridiculing that which is godly. We now belong to the world. And we make fun and we mock those things which are godly. Can you see that progression there? The psalmist progresses, uh, uh, shows that progression by using the words walking, then standing, then seating, then sitting. Did you see that? It's a very visual way of grabbing a hold of it. When we think of progress, we think of ourselves sitting, then standing, and beginning to walk as we move forward in progress. But here it's the other way around. We are walking... And all of a sudden we begin to think, we begin to, as it says here, walk in that way, that mindset that might be wrong. And it arrests us enough that we stop in our forward progress. And now we're standing and we're beginning to live it out. And finally, we stop our journey as we take a seat and we sit in the midst of our sin. It's a very lively uh, metaphor and picture that the psalmist gives us. 
basically telling us that when we live in sin, we go from bad to worse. As 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. You simply cannot play around with sin. You cannot entertain it, people of God, under any circumstance. And so I ask you, are you deceiving yourself? Are you fooling yourself, thinking that you can flirt around with sin? I'm just simply going to think it. I'm just going to allow it to pass through my mind. Remember what Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately perverse. You will fool yourself. You cannot flirt with sin. Where are you? Are you flirting with it? Or perhaps are you now planted so firmly in it that you don't even know how to get out? If so, remember what verses 4 through 6 say, your end will be nothing other than destruction. No matter what you profess, it's what you're doing, it's what you're living out. And so the first thing that Psalm 1 begins is we have to dissociate from the wicked and from its ways. As Paul says in Ephesians 5.3, we ought to not even have a hint of this kind of behavior in our lives. And instead, what we have to do is turn away from our sin, and as verse 2 tells us, turn to God. Dissociate from the wicked, but associate with God. That is the way that you walk the way of blessing. And it tells us how to do it, because it says that the way to blessing and the way to avoid falling into the trap of wickedness is simple. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It is through the joyful and the constant study and meditation of the word of God. Here the law of the Lord refers to the whole of the scripture. It is through that that we can walk the way of of the godly. It is through that that we can avoid falling into the trap of wickedness. Let's break it down again. Look at the beginning of verse 2. It says that we are to delight in the law of the Lord. And when we talk about delighting, we're not just simply talking about a feeling, a good feeling about the law of the Lord, a good feeling about the word, or just saying nice, pious things about it. It means that we delight in being godly. We delight in obeying the law of the Lord. We delight in doing what God commands. And that means that our behavior is going to be different from the world. Psalm 112, verse 1 is key. It says, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. And so to delight in the law of the Lord means to delight in doing the things that the word brings to us. Delight in obeying God's commands. And here's the secret. The only way that you can delight in what God commands is when you delight in God himself. In other words, obedience flows from your love for God. Otherwise, it's just bare obedience and it's not truly driven from the heart. As Jesus himself said in John fourteen fifteen, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will obey, Jesus says. And so only as you delight in God himself, as your love for Christ motivates you, can you truly delight in his word and delight in his command. And so your obedience becomes a barometer, a measure of your sincerity when you say that you follow Jesus. So people of God, ask yourself, and what do I delight? What is my delight? And we're told then as we go on, 
They were to meditate on the Word of God continually, day and night. Now, just so we understand, we're, we're not just talking about setting aside special times for devotions. That's necessary and appropriate. Nor is it hardly saying that you spend every moment with the Bible open day and night and you do nothing other than looking at the Word of God. Some people have understood or misunderstood this passage uh, to mean those things. No, it means that no matter what you are doing in your life, and there's a whole variety of different activities that we do aside from formal times of study and and reflection on the Word of God. But it means that in all those times, in all those different circumstances, you are continually reflecting on the Word of God, how it affects you, how it motivates you, and how it shapes you. The Word of God is something that you reflect on in all your daily activities. Think of it the way we read about it in Joshua 1.8. The command there is, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. What it's teaching is very simple. Whether you are drafting a proposal for your boss at work, whether you are changing diapers, whether you are pursuing your sweetheart, whatever it is that you are doing, all these things must be informed by the world. And the only way the people of God that can happen is that you become steeped in Scripture. You become soaked in Scripture. You allow yourself to marinate in Scripture so that you suck it up like a sponge and it fills the core of who you are. And it affects your mind. And it affects your emotions. And it affects your will. And that comes through continual and joyful study and meditation upon the Word of God. The mind here, my friends, is key. Key to the whole of your being. Whatever shapes your thinking shapes your life. You can quote me on that. Whatever shapes your thinking shapes your life. So that however it is that you think is going to affect what it is that you do. And so you then become responsible for shaping your thinking to be a godly way of thinking. And the only way that you can shape it that way is through the constant reading and meditation on the Word of God as you develop develop a biblical and godly worldview that will affect everything around you so that no matter what situation you find yourself, you'll be able to respond in a way that is in accord with the Word of God, no matter what happens, no matter which situation presents itself. As you absorb a biblical worldview, You become enabled to respond to things in a godly way and to resist the way of the wicked and the temptations that come with it. It starts, my friends, with being steeped in the Word of God, soaked in Scripture. And if this is the key to blessedness, and it is, why is it that we so often ignore it, especially when it comes to our kids? Why are we robbing them of the opportunity to develop a godly worldview? I understand we're all busy. We all have demands of job, and we all have demands of home, and we can't ignore those things. And yes, we do have to prepare our kids for careers, for college. We prepare them with all sorts of activities and classes and projects, and all those things are good in and of themselves. We are not saying to not engage in those things. We're not saying not to pursue them. But the question is, what is the ultimate value of those things that take up so much of your time? 
and at what cost are we pursuing them? In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, the apostle says, Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. There the apostle Paul doesn't say there's no value in taking care of your bodies. He said, train your bodies, take care of yourselves physically. There are many things that we have to train and care for and prepare. But the ultimate value is training yourself for godliness because its value is not only in this life, but eternally. People of God, don't you see? Developing a biblical worldview, pursuing godliness and the way of God as the psalm lays out for us. It is only godliness that is of real and ultimate and eternal value. It's the only investment that you will make in your children that is forever. All those other things that you're pursuing with your kids, they may be fine. They may be good in and of themselves, but they will not matter one whit if you ignore what truly matters. And so I challenge each and every one of you, don't simply be those who glance at Scripture, who see it on Sunday morning and perhaps a little verse here and there. You've heard of this one-minute study Bible or one-minute devotions? That's nonsense. Nonsense. You don't give one minute to anything else in your work and in your home life. What is of value to you? Make the law of the Lord your delight. And the result is what we see in verse 3. When you become soaked in Scripture, we read, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that He does, He prospers. Here the metaphor changes. We're no longer walking on the path. We're now trees. But this tree has been planted right next to the stream of life-giving water. That Word of God nourishes you. So that you can grow strong and you can bear fruit and you can be successful. In all that he does, he prospers, it says. Prosperity here not being some assurance of great wealth, but prospering in that the blessing of God is on your life. As it makes absolutely clear, that blessing can only come as you're being nourished by the life-giving word of God. And as you, the tree, soak up that water, it's not enough to sprinkle the tree. When I was a kid, I wanted to water plants, and I tried to get them all wet. It doesn't matter whether you get the leaves wet. It has to go into the roots. It has to be soaked up into the tree. And only then will you flourish and bear fruit. Only if you're nourished by that scripture. So it's not enough, as I said, to just read the scripture. And you know what I'm talking about. Okay, I read it. I got it done. Boom, boom. No, you have to meditate it. You have to soak it in. You have to make it a part of who you are. It has to change us. And only then does it bear fruit. And the reverse flip aside of that is if you're producing no visible fruit, then it becomes very clear that you're not being fed by the word of God. In Matthew 7, verse 16, our Lord said, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What kind of fruit are you bearing? Good or diseased? It is a barometer of where your life is. 
It has been my sad experience that any time that I have dealt with people of God who make professions of faith, but whose lives are not bearing that out, that invariably what I find is that there is not much in the way of being nourished by the Word of God, that they are glancers of Scripture and not those who read and meditate upon it. People of God, your fruit reveals who you are. Are you a healthy tree or a diseased one? But when you are nourished by the Word of God, verse 3 tells us that your leaf does not wither. A leaf becomes strong and able to withstand whatever comes along the way, disease and drought. But because it is nourished by the Word of God, nourished with that life-giving water, it's able to withstand those trials of life. When that diagnosis of cancer comes, when that news of the death of your loved one comes, when you receive that pink slip and are let go from your work, when your spouse leaves you or abandons you, Those things are going to hurt. Those things are going to cause stress. But you will not wither away. Instead, under the strengthening and empowering of God through Scripture, you will ultimately prosper. That's the promise. You will be established. This idea of permanence and of contentment and fulfillment. The wicked, on the other hand, they're quite the opposite. Rather than prospering, rather than being established, we read that they're swept away. Look at verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Most of us are not farmers, but you probably know that wheat, what we call wheat, what we'll either eat directly or bake into bread or so on, there's a kernel of wheat. That's the part that you actually use for food, and it's surrounded by this, this husk. This shaft that is useless, it has no nutritional value whatsoever. And so you have to remove the shaft, the husk, in order to get to the kernel of wheat. And what the farmers in those days did for speed, rather than doing that all individually, is they had these threshing forks, like pitchforks, but they were for threshing and they or winnowing sometimes they're called. And you would put them into the wheat and you would throw it up into the air. And because the kernel of wheat has weight, But the shaft is weightless, insignificant. It's nothing. That would get blown away by the wind, and the part that you want to keep, the kernel, would fall to the ground. And that's how you would winnow out the good from the bad. And so what we're seeing here is this shaft, which was no good for food or anything else and has no nutrients and no substance whatsoever, was only good for being blown away. And so it is with the wicked. The psalmist says the wicked will be swept away. They have no real intrinsic value, nothing of substance. They will not be established. They will not experience any permanence unlike the godly. And that's because, as we read in verse 5, they will experience the judgment of God. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Perhaps that's something that's not obvious. While they are alive and busy with all their wicked activities, but from the perspective of God, the wicked have absolutely no future. Looks can be deceiving. And when we, perceive, when we pursue the way of the wicked, our lives are without meaning, and we have no future and no permanence. And this is because we will be judged. And there's two aspects to that judgment that we see in verse 5, that of collapse and that of expulsion. And collapse is what we see in the beginning of verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. 
On that day of judgment, when the wicked stand before the judge, they will collapse. They have no leg on which to stand on, nothing to offer, nothing that we have done, nothing that we have been can we offer up to God to make up for choosing to walk the way of the wicked. And the result is that of expulsion. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. They will not be amongst those who are counted as blessed. People of God, what a total and utter waste of one's life to pursue the way of the wicked. All that money, all that power, all that success, and for what? Everything will come collapsing down on you, and you will be expelled from the way of those, or the midst of those who truly prosper. And so, people of God, you can see that your choice will be the basis for your happiness or for your ruin. You need to decide. Not sometime in the future, you need to decide today. You need to decide now what way and what path you will follow. It's not enough to simply say that you're going to be godly. You have to choose the means of godliness. You have to commit yourself to grounding yourself in the Word of God. And as you're soaked and steeped in the Word of God, only then will you be walking on that way of blessing and know the prosperity and the permanence that God promises. And so I ask you, people of God, as you look at your lives, ask yourself, what is the most important thing to you today? What is the most important thing this upcoming week? What will you delight in and what will you pursue? If you're one of those that only nibbles away at Scripture, does it make sense to continue this way? Is it worth the end that will come your way? Remember what verse 6 says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Which path will you take? The way of the righteous or the wicked? The choice is yours. But before we can draw this to a close, we do have one last thing to look at in this psalm, and that is the blessed man. The blessed man. Because if I just stop there by putting that choice up before you, The bottom line is that each and every one of us, in our natural innate state, we lack the ability to ever choose the way of blessing. The reality is that in our nature, sinful and fallen as it is, we don't have the ability to delight in the Word of God. In fact, we've all made quite a bit of progress down the way of wickedness so that we're all set to be blown away just like chaff. That's a pretty depressing end to a message. I don't want to leave it here promising you choose one or the other when you really don't have the ability and no person does in and of themselves to choose the way of blessing on their own. But is there hope for us? Yes, there is. That hope can be seen very clearly when we look again carefully at verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That's what saves us. It's God's knowing of us. Again, that word know is more than just simply an awareness or an academic knowledge. It's God's care and his protection and his commitment. God's commitment to establish you and to see you prosper. And that commitment is demonstrated and carried out for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And yes, in the Old Testament, Jesus is on every page, as much as he is in the New Testament. And you see, people of God, this psalm 
Even though I've been talking about the choice before you, this psalm does not describe you primarily. It describes Jesus. Look at verse 1. Blessed is the man. And the first thing you think, oh, there's that misogynistic, patriarchal, sexist language of the Old Testament. Actually, there may be a failing in English in not having a generic word, singular, for a human being, so that we've sometimes translated man. But the Hebrew does have a word that represents a person in general. It's the word Adam. The first human being was called Adam because he was the generic human being. (laughs) So that's what that word means, but it's not the word that's being used here. The word that's being used here is a very particular Hebrew word, the word ish, which means male. Ish, male, isha, female in Hebrew. And... The Jews of the time would have read that and said, huh, that should have been Adam. Because it's, they understood it to mean all people, even though it did refer to a particular man. They would have scratched their heads and said, huh, I wonder why that was. But it becomes absolutely clear when we come to the New Testament. The New Testament sheds light on the old and helps us to understand it. Because this is a particular reference to one specific man. Jesus is the blessed man of verse 1. Because Jesus is the man who never walked in the counsel of the wicked, the one who never stood in the way of sinners, the one who never sat in the seat of scoffers. Jesus is the one who always delighted in the law of the Lord. In fact, he meditated on it continually. The scripture informed every aspect of his being and every aspect of his life. In every way, Jesus walked the way of God. And as a result, Jesus earned the blessing of verse 3. Jesus is the one who planted himself in the word of God so that he bore fruit and his leaf never withers. He's the only person, the only human being who has ever lived who is capable of earning and meriting the blessing of God. And yet here's the thing that really stands out. It's one of the reasons why the Jews had so much difficulty accepting that Jesus was the Christ. Because they understood what this psalm was teaching, that if you do all these things, then God will bless you and not curse you. But when you look at the life of Jesus, it didn't seem that he was blessed. On the contrary, the one man who did all these things perfectly seemed to have been rather cursed. Here was a man who, rather than prospering, was misunderstood even by his closest friends, a man who was persecuted, a man who was betrayed by his closest friends, who was handed over to the chief priests and scribes where he was mocked, where he was ridiculed, where he was tortured, and where he was unjustly condemned to death by Pontius Pilate to take upon himself a penalty that he did not deserve even one whit. And yet, to that death he went, and he suffered horribly there on the cross. And so you see, people of God, even in Psalm 1, we see the gospel clearly, because Jesus Christ is the blessed man who became Jesus the cursed man on our behalf. As Galatians 3.13 said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by being cursed for our sake. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. What Jesus Christ did for us is that he suffered the wrath of God in our place. 
He was judged just as we read about. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. He stood in the judgment seat and took upon himself that wrath which you and I so richly deserve. Jesus was driven away like the shaft for our sin. But the good news that we read in the New Testament is that he did not remain in the grave, but he rose victorious from the dead on that third day so that God then did declare him righteous and once more he became that blessed man. And that is good news for us. That's what the word gospel means, good news. Because this psalm is about you, but it's only about you insofar as you are found in Jesus Christ. Only insofar as you identify yourself with Jesus, the one blessed man who deserved it. As you find yourself in union with Jesus. And it's because Jesus was driven away like the shaft in our place that now you can be established and find permanence. It's because Jesus was cursed in your place that now you can be blessed and know the love and care and protection of God. And when you trust in his righteousness, not in anything that you bring to the table, but wholly in the perfect life of Jesus, then that curse that is upon you becomes lifted and you become blessed. Clearly, it's a blessedness that you do not deserve. It is the gift of God earned by Jesus, by his life, by his work. But that should evoke even more joy in our hearts, and even more gratitude for what it means as we recognize that his work is our blessing and brings us into fellowship with God himself. And that should motivate us to love God. If you love me, you will obey my commandments and to move forward in obedience, relying not in our own strength, but in the power of Jesus, who promises that in our union with him, he will strengthen us and equip us to obey him and to live lives of gratitude for all that he has done. People of God, that is the only way in which you can step onto the way of blessing and to the way of godliness. Only as you cling on to Jesus, the only one, who has merited and earned it by living that perfect life. May God, as we wrap up this series, and as you think upon how will I live, will I live in a godly way? Will that vision statement represent a true way of living for me? Will it just remain a piece of paper as I give lip service, one hand or one foot in the church, the other one in the world? How will you live that choice is before you? And may God enable each and every one of us to make the choice clinging to Jesus Christ and to him alone that we might become truly blessed. Amen. Let us pray.